Welcome to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science behind luxury items. While we've talked about almost all the colors, how we see color, how to pink, make paint, and even interviewed an artist about his process. So what's next? Well, once these beautiful works of art are created, how do they last? How do we preserve cultural and artistic history? This week, we're talking about art restoration and preservation. It's a cause of a lot of disagreement in the world of architecture, I found out listening to an art history podcast, because a lot of people think things should just degrade and fall apart mm. because it's part of their history. Yeah, I could see that. But I also think there's a, a case to be made for preserving cultural heritage. You know, yes. We are in Greece. The Greeks are very proud of their cultural heritage. And I think you could look at the Parthenon as an example of the history of art preservation in that in the beginning a lot of the attempts actually made things worse. Agreed. Plus the insights that we're going to talk about today are telling us a lot more about how art was actually created. Mm -hmm. Stuff we would have never have known. You take you take the example of the Parthenon sculptures and we found out using some techniques that they were actually painted but we wouldn't have known that after right. so many years of decay. Yes, you're right. The conservation techniques that are used really have provided a lot of insight into how the art was created. And we're going to focus primarily on paintings, since that's what we've been talking about for the last however many episodes. No, about 10. Yeah, but you can... Um, I mean, there's also a whole body of work on preserving not just um, architecture and sculpture, but metalwork, ceramics, fabrics, pretty much anything. And I would remind the viewers and the listeners that our the older... Our, please, take a look. <laughs> the older episodes have so much deep information on the pigments yes. and the composition behind it. And that, if you understand how the pigments are made... That immediately turns you into someone knowledgeable about restoration yes. and and conservation. Yeah, there was just an I didn't cover this in the notes, but I was in my research. I found an article about um, an a art conservatory getting arsenic poisoning. Oh wow! Because yeah. when, as they were in the process of the restoration, and not I mean not didn't die or anything, but um, in the process of the restoration, and the arsenic paint came in contact with some gases that released the arsenic. Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be another reason why you should carry around your x-ray dis ray distracting... Oh, sorry. <laughs> x-ray <laughs> <laughs> gun. We'll just use the word x-ray gun oh, because um, x-ray fluorescence yeah. um, handgun so that you know exactly what you're using yes. by pointing. Yeah. Little, well, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Well, let's start with the basics. So Encyclopedia Britannica has a definition of art restoration because it has a de definition of everything. Absolutely. right? And they say any attempt to conserve and repair architecture, paintings, drawings, prints, sculptures, and objects of decorative arts that have been adversely affected by negligence, willful damage, or more usually, the inevitable decay caused by the effects of time and human use. And there is a difference between conservation and restoration. Indeed, yes. I saw this too. Yeah, so conservation is the maintenance of the works of arts and their protection from future damage, and restoration is restoring them once damage has already happened. Yeah. 
in some cases, restoration is an attempt to bring it back into its original glory. As much as possible. But I think there's so much we have to learn about the art on the way to mm. back on that path, yeah. only to discover in many cases that sometimes art is covering a whole other canvas mm -hmm. with different artwork behind the artwork you thought you were working on. Yeah, so I came across an interesting conservation technique for paintings. So uh, sometimes the paint or the ground, which is a layer before the paint, will come up from the surface of the canvas. And this is called cleaving, flaking, blistering, or scaling. So the traditional method is to reinforce the back of the canvas by attaching a new canvas. So you're yeah. essentially almost restretching it out so that the flaking doesn't happen. And to do this, you iron a new canvas on the back using adhesive made of warm animal glue paste in sometimes a plasticizer. And they still use this technique in Italy and France. But in the 19th century, they started using thermoplastic wax resin mixtures, and it was done with heated irons. And in the 1950s, they added a vacuum table. So the two canvases are heated with a molten adhesive and joined together on an electrically heated metal plate. It's covered with a membrane, and like the air memory. between the canvases is evacuated through, with a pump through holes in the corner of the table. And now, actually, they have polymers that can adhere adhere on cooling. Um, but the risk with this is that it can darken the canvases and it can thin some of the paint layers. And so in the 1960s, they came up with these heat seal adhesives, which are synthetic resins. And more recently, they have cold setting polymer dispersions in a low pressure suction table that has a powerful downdraft of air to kind of stick these together. And the nice thing about these is that you can have heating and humidification systems. So you control the humidity, the heat, and the gentle pressure to perform a, perform a variety of treatments on the painting um, at the same time. And in my research, I saw an emphasis on the, the ability to, one, do this type of conservation mm -hmm. with the expectation that it can be reversed as necessary. Yeah. Um, and even down to adding paints to see to remove chips or to recover the color that was that was yes. due, due to that those those chip insertions or that that added new paint mm -hmm. is designed to be removable yes so uh, I, I have that in my next one on yeah. restoration which I thought was fascinating yes restoration restoration being the renovation or repair of artworks that have sustained damage and as we alluded to, early attempts at restoration often made things worse. So one tech, old technique was covering the painting with wood ash and then wiping it off with water. But this formed an alkaline substance that was harmful to the paints. We've talked about a lot in our pigment podcast about rea reactions with alkaline substances. But by the late 19th, early 20th century, there was a growing sense that the art and science would have to come together to preserve these artworks. And in 1920s, a group of people assembled at the Fogg Art Museum at Harvard, with Edward Forbes being a pivotal figure. And he advocated technical investigations, which included, ones that you'll talk about, uh, radio radiography and imaging to view the internal composition of the object or the work of art. And two others, Rutherford John Gettins and George L. Stout, wrote Painting Materials, a short encyclopedia that is still an essential resource, resource for artists and conservationists. So what they said is the steps for restoration are the initial analysis, assessing the loss of the paint done by infrared imaging, and you can use cameras with fixed wavelengths that helps distinguish the different pigments 
because materials reflect and absorb various wavelengths differently. So you can see yeah. all the different components of a piece of art, not just painting. Then they removed the discolored varnish. Yes, that is the most common restoration. Yeah. And, and then they technique. put an immediate coat of new varnish to separate the new paint from the old paint. So you're preserving the original paint. And then the conservator, well, what's called in-paint, damaged yep. areas using dry pigment mixed with a synthetic non-yellowing solvent. And then you can, un like you said, undo that if necessary. Yeah. And, and with a lot of documentation, you know exactly where to undo it. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to mention that I came across that tied into what you talked about last time with browns. Mm -hmm. So pigments with bit bitumen in it, they never dry. Oh, wow. And so you get like this asphalt. like, right, so the pigment doesn't dry, but then the varnish dries on top of it. And so you get this uh, crackling effect of the wow. painting. Yeah, that actually, I don't know that can be undone. But. Well, the crackling effect and those physical effects point to one of the more interesting articles I saw from the National Gallery of Canada. Mm. So when you walk into the National Gallery of Canada and you go to the Impressionists, mm -hmm. there are signs on every single artwork that say, please touch. Really? Mm -hmm. Why? Because they're not the actual artwork, but an extremely highly detailed 3D printed uh, reproduction using an extremely accurate 3D scanning technique hmm. where they don't only reprint the artwork, mm -hmm. but they reprint the texture mm. of the artwork. That's so cool. So that you can touch the brush strokes. Mm -hmm. And the accuracy was within 10 microns width mm. and one micron of elevation. Wow, that's impressive. Yes. So they're essentially scanning these artworks with these high resolution mm -hmm. cameras at different angles and then creating these uh, essentially tomographic maps. Mm -hmm. And the technique is borrowed from the earlier technique you talked about, which was the uh, near-infrared and infrared mm -hmm. coherent scanning technique, mm -hmm. which we'll also talk about. It's also referred to as OCT, or optical coherence tomography, mm -hmm. which is a way of categorizing and understanding the pigments and what the pigments are made of. One of many tools. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could overcome so many years of being told not to touch the art. <laughs> well, you know, every art museum's got to have their way of differentiating themselves and yes, making themselves interesting. True. So why not go to a place where you can touch all the art? Uh, yeah, that's crazy. So do you want to tell us a bit about how they do these initial analyses of the paintings? So an initial analysis is going to involve a lot of high-resolution photography mm -hmm. and doing that with different light sources. So, for example... One of the things that they wanted to preserve was the spectrum of light that you would have on a sunny day, mm -hmm. on a cloudy day. Mm -hmm. And so light, lighting is changed. UV is added or subtracted as necessary because certain types of paint stand out a lot more with UV than they do otherwise. And this is very important from a visual perspective and a part of the whole conservation process. Right. So... That's the first way. Then the next way is to use a photospectrometer, which is a fancy way of, of capturing the actual color temperature of each pigment. Mm. And that way, when you zoom in with your, when you zoom in on the picture on your computer, when you hover over it, right. you'll get a spectrum, which will tell you exactly how much red and exactly how much green, exactly how much blue. Is this the same technology that is used when you bring an item into the hardware store and they match the color? Yes. 
So that would be, that could work. <laughs> work. And part of that is you use that so that you can match mm -hmm. the color colors mm -hmm. because you have this palette. But what's interesting is with the older works, you have a lim more limited yeah. palette. But you're also not going to use some of those things. Like you're not going to use as much arsenic probably in yeah. the restoration or yeah. the conservation. And then that process gives you the ability to at least get an overall view, yeah. an overview of the artwork. Now, we're not diving in deep yet, but we're starting to. <laughs> yeah, so what else? So the next thing that um, I was researching was the approach of using X-ray fluorescence. Mm. And so X-ray- I do like anything that fluoresces. It's kind of fun. So what's really exciting about X-ray fluorescence is um, there are these handguns that I mentioned before right. that are, well, they're hand mounted, they're handheld, and they have a small x-ray tube in mm. them pointed outwards. Mm. And then it has a um, silicon diode, uh, essentially a, an x-ray receiver. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you can point it at whatever you need to x-ray define. Mm -hmm. And the display will say what elements are out under the, the laser dot right, that you're right. pointing to. So so you basically pointed, you can walk around your house and say, oh, that's a granite floor. Mm. Or I know now exactly what varnish is used on my wood floors. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, that's a stainless steel refrigerator door. But now imagine you can walk over to the painting and do the same thing. So question for you. Do you happen to know the readout for those? Is it a readout like a spectrograph where you have like a like a, a peak or a bar chart, or does it just like have it go beep, this is steel? No, 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 it would, <laughs> it would be that, here, um, so I know we're kind of cheating and I'm showing you the image from the paper I was reading, but what you'll get is a bunch of bar graphs like you would if you're doing an Excel chart mm -hmm. and you wanted to graph, and what it is is it'll show you the percentage of what it thinks of each element on the periodic table. Mm, and okay. then it'll say, okay, the dark brown background is composed of these elements in these percentages. And so kind of like a recipe. It's, so it's kind of like a recipe. And so the problem with a recipe is when you bite into a piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken, mm -hmm. you know there's 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> and what this machine will do is it'll tell you what it thinks those 11 herbs and spices are in percentage. Yeah. So theoretically then if you could buy all of those herbs and spices and mash them together in exactly the percentage on those graphs, you should be able to get that color mm. or that flavor. Right. And so that's, that was, that was kind of the goal of that. So that's, that technique again is very interesting because what happens is it beams photons towards the painting and right. the painting reflects off the different photons based on the, and each element does it differently. Right. right. Each element has a different uh, photon color. Mm-hmm. And you just need to have a sensor that's Refractive sensitive. index. Thank you. Well, no, this isn't refraction because we're not refracting. We're not, it's not crystallography. Okay. So in crystallography, we do have a refractive index and, and you see refraction in the form and you can see the crystal structure. Mm -hmm. In this case, we're simply reflecting back a different frequency mm -hmm. of light, uh, but the light is not visible to our eyes, right. but we have sensors that it is visible to. Yeah. And then the sensors simply report back the different uh, ultraviolet or radiation colors. It's really absolutely amazing to me that by harnessing a very simple principle of light, you can do so much, not just in this world, right? So, so much of my previous work as an immunologist was based on this 
almost the same principle. The same principle. Mm-hmm. You would hit a, a, what we call a fluorophore, a fluorescent molecule with a certain wavelength laser, and it would emit back a reflective wavelength that you would then capture mm-hmm. to generate information about, in, in my case, cells or parasites that we were studying. So I just... The more we talk about this, right, we started all the way in the beginning with the eye mm-hmm. and how yeah. you see, and it's all this this basic concept. This basic concept of light physics allows us to do so much, and I think it's really fascinating. Yes, it is. I mean, it kind of takes you back to Star Trek The Next Generation with Jordy <laughs> LaForge and his special glasses. And he his was, visor. His, his visor, exactly. And, and what that visor was is it gave him sort of this superhero ability to see more than what humans can see. They could see, you could see heat. He could see radiation. Yes. And that's essentially what we're doing is we're broadening our ability to see these. And so X-ray fluorescence is one of those ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's great about X-ray fluorescence is you can scan an image left and right, scanning Mm -hmm. it, just raster scanning the image, uh, let's say with a robotic device that sits in front of the painting, and get a map of every element and then map the elements and redraw the image in a different spectrum. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now you're wearing these reflective glasses that can see different spectra. It's, it's pretty exciting. That's very cool. That technique is also completely non-destructive, which is very important. Yeah. I I think that's really the, the crux of the whole thing, right? Is you can get so much important information about an artwork without having to take it apart. Yes. So that's the that's the other way. And then finally, the destructive approach, mm. which is going to happen anytime you're in the process of conservation, mm. is you're going to get fleck, flakes mm-hmm. and flecks of paint that are going to chip off. Right. In that case, you save those flecks, you put them into an epoxy resin, mm-hmm. you shave the epoxy resin to a smooth surface, you put it on a grinding wheel, and yep. you, you make it mirror image, yeah. you coat it with a little molybdenum, and then you stick it in your electron microscope. <laughs> I love electron microscopes. There is an Instagram account that we follow um, that is all images from scanning electron microscopes, and it's so fascinating. In my grad school, I used them, and I, I was actually kind of shocked and amazed at how easily electron microscopes destroy what they're looking at. Yes, it is a very destructive technology. The yes. account, if anyone wants it, is called Kissed by Electrons. Oh and boy. it's a very fun Instagram of electron microscopy. Yeah, it should be more called Burned by Electrons. Because well, electrons, I know. Um, especially when you're, using, when you're trying to determine and see something, and it goes back to sort of these early concepts of physics. Whenever, if you can see something at an atomic level, chances are you're also scattering it about you're mm-hmm. like putting your hand in the, in, in yeah. the bucket of candy that you just got <laughs> from halloween and now you're disturbing the arrangement yeah. of the candy that's what these electrons do to all these atoms that they're beaming into however because the process isn't immediate when the electron is reflected back you see two things you see light in the form of returned electrons which is one how you can see an electron micrograph in mm-hmm. the first place because it's that reflection back, just like we see in an optical microscope. But two, mm-hmm. the type of electron that comes back gives you, again, a spectroscopy. So you can not only do the handheld machine, which at a very gross level gives you a spot, right. maybe a spot of, you know, say a millimeter diameter hole right. that you're looking at. But now with, with electron analysis, you can go in and you can get those tiny specks, those microscopic mm-hmm. specks of paint. 
can now even get a very detailed spectroscopy of what is part of that speck. Because when we look at pigments on an optical microscope, most of the time the pigment is maybe 1% of the image itself. Right. And the rest of the time what we're seeing is the, um, is the binder yes. around the, the yeah. pigment. So yeah. a very small amount of the painting is actually pigment. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I like that. So I found something a little bit different. I think you'll like it, though, because okay. it's material science. So there's a review paper uh, published in 2021 in the journal Molecules from the University of Florence uh, from Michelle Baglioni and other authors. And it looks at the advances in material science and technology and how it, they can be used in conservation of cultural heritage and preservation of artifacts. And one of the things they looked at is cleaning. Because before you can do all of this, you actually have to clean, usually, yes. any artwork. <laughs> and so they looked at these fluids called nanostructured fluids. And these are colloidal systems based on surfactants. And so surfactants are soaps, yes. essentially, right? Um, so above a certain concentration, surfactants will self-assemble into micelles. Which, okay. if you've paid attention to any sort of beauty industry advertisements lately, it was like a hot thing for a second. If all the cleansers had quote-unquote micelles in them. But all micelles yeah. are, are small aggregates with a hydrophobic core. Okay, hydrophobic means it doesn't want water. doesn't want water. So, so they arrange themselves with the hydrophilic molecules in the outside, and the hydrophobic ones are in the middle, because you're in an aqueous solution. Yeah. It's, example, oil and water emulsions. Okay. So salad dressing. So the first use of these as a um, cleaning solutions. So what happens is you can put or you can get organic solvents trapped in the micelles. Okay. Yeah. So in 1986, uh, one of these nanostructured fluids was constructed, and it was used to remove wax stains from the surfa surface of Renaissance frescoes in Florence, Italy. Okay. And this. The way that they work as a soap is that the solubilization, so essentially the, the apolar molecules inside the core, the ones that don't normally like water. Okay, apolar being molecules that do not have an electric charge? Yeah. Or not polarized? Yeah, not polarized. Okay. Yeah. So they're, but you solubilize them in these micelles, essentially, because they're so tiny, they're nano, that it's effectively solubilizing something that otherwise wouldn't go into a solution. Okay. Yeah. And that, that is responsible for the detergent properties of these fluids. And it drives the removal of low molecular weight chemicals that are commonly found in soil and grime. Okay. And they're non-destructive. So it's a non-destructive way to clean things. Okay. You can also use microorganisms and their metabolic processes to clean things. In particular, no removal of nitrates and sulfites from stones and the elimination of black crusts and aged organic compounds from frescoes. So I could buy a bag of bacteria and clean things? Yes. Wow. Why am I not adding that to my laundry? Uh, like a stain I, remover. Because I think most stain people would stick. be a little uneasy with that idea. Okay, it's probably some terrible, deadly bacteria. No, no, it's not. It's just that I don't think the, the general public would would necessarily jump on board with like put bacteria into your laundry to get it cleaner <laughs> yeah yeah it's true it's true <laughs> so there's another aside from the cleaning another concept in restoration and conservation particularly with frescoes is called consolidation and it's essentially the layers of paint sticking 
to each other and to the wall of the, mm-hmm. for the fresco. Yeah. In 1996, there was a major flood of the Arno River in Florence, and obviously a number of artworks were contaminated with salts and organic compounds that started to remove the paint layers. Mm-hmm. So Essentially, the paint was being washed off the wall. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a physical chemist from the University of Florence set out to fix that, and he recre- essentially recreated lime, which was the original binder of the paint to the wall, by using ammonium carbonate and barium hydroxide solutions. And this set into calcium carbonate, which is the natural way that the frescoes were set. Mm-hmm. And calcium carbonate being lime. Yeah. yeah. This was turned into the formulation of nanoparticle dispersions in short-chain alcohols. And so what happens is that this these compounds form crystalline platelets of what's called portlandite, which I thought we'd like. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, that's also a form of cement. Right. So it's a natural form of calcium hydroxide, and it's the major bonding agent in cement and concrete. Mm -hmm. Right. So those are formed in this solution, and they they put it in alcohol as opposed to water because it increases the amount of that material, the active material that gets delivered, and it avoids alkaline-sensitive pigments in binders, since water is a little bit alkaline. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so they essentially re... I thought it was really interesting. They scientifically, chemically recreated the original lime binder of the fresco. So were the frescoes, like, falling off the walls, and they basically used this as a yeah. glue to glue yeah. them back on? pretty much. Okay, so this is just, like, a really great glue Yeah. that was essentially cement. Right. Wow. Yeah. And again, it gives you insight into how they originally did the frescoes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And, I mean, everyone can get behind using the original material to mm-hmm. rebond and mm-hmm. repairs. And, I mean, obviously there's going to be cracks a, here and like there. It's like gonna... an enhanced version of the original material. Yeah. Right? Because it's yeah. a chemically Pouillard version that's been made in short-chain alcohols so that you really optimize the adherence. Yeah. And it's better than just getting a bunch of like uh, Elmer's paste and sticking. Or even giving cement itself. It's better because the Parthenon has areas that were cemented back together. Oh, it looks horrible. Again, a um, misguided attempt to fix it after it went through a lot of damage. And the restoration effort has been ongoing for a very long time because they're trying to first undo the bad Bad restoration restoration. and then redo it in a way that's more authentic to how the Parthenon was originally constructed. So, which is exciting in its own right. It and is a lot of technology, and one non-destructive technology, because one of the things you want to do is break out all of that old material yeah. and do it in a way, and knowing where exactly the old material stops and the new material ends, yeah, is very helpful in uh, determining where to cleave, where yeah. to put your tools, yeah. and where to start breaking that apart. So you're ready for some glossary terms. Uh, yeah, sure. Mine are going to be some pretty big words, but I'm happy to throw them out there. All right. Well, I will start. Art conservation is... Oh, it's the... Um, not not the repair... It's the maintaining yes. of art. And protection from and future protection. damage. Yeah. yeah. And preservation is... Is is the um, maintaining from future... No, the repair. The repair. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. I thought restoration, but... Okay, now I know or, two words. Same, same, same. Okay. Uh, Portlandite. A type of cement from Portland. No, it's a natural <laughs> form of calcium hydroxide, and it's the major bonding agent in cement and concrete, but it's not cement yeah. in and of itself. All right, what do you got? Okay, I've got spectroscopy, x-ray spectroscopy. Okay. So what do you think about that? 
that is using x-rays to figure out what stuff is made of. Okay, really cool. And um, the other one is photospectrometry. Using photography to figure out what things are made of. <laughs> well, with photospectrometry, it's a vis- visual light version of the exact yeah. same thing, okay. Okay. which is, I think, what you did with your PhD. Was it visible light spectrometry? No. Oh, it was. No. It was. It was outside. Well, of, it was both. With the human. Okay. Yeah. All right. So cocktail party facts. So we went through what's the difference between conservation and restoration or preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, where did modern art science, con- art conservation science, originate? Do you remember? Where it originated, mm-hmm. I, uh, Italy. Well, probably. Well, the people claiming it are. <laughs> We'll go that way. The people claiming it are the Fogg Art Museum at Harvard. Oh, wow. In the okay. 1920s. So this is the modern approach. Yeah, the modern. Okay. Yeah. And for you, how did create, or scientists and artists create touchable art in Canada? Yeah, yeah. I think the touchable art was... Yeah, but how'd they do it? Oh, how they did that. Okay, so that was done doing three-dimensional scanning, mm-hmm. which was scanning um, the same artwork but at multiple angles in order to get a topographic image and not just a visual image cool all right well thank you for listening to this episode of luxi please tell at least two people about this podcast that is the best way to help us get noticed and find new listeners a special thanks to as always to my audio engineer demos a theme music is harlequin mood by Brody. you can find us all over social media at luxipod and i suggest you take check out our instagram demos is having a little bit of a viral moment in our reel about an Archimedes screw. So yes. if you haven't checked us out at LuxiPod on Instagram, please do and find that reel because apparently it's pretty popular. Yeah, watch me move water. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>